Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to call this section of Scripture Overcoming by the Son and Testimony Concerning the Son. Our context is this in chapter 4. In 1 John 4, John started out the chapter by talking about testing the spirits, i.e. the spirits of the false teachers who will be who were bedeviling his Christian readers. And then in verses 7 through 21, he spoke of the incredible fact that God is love. So now we're going to start in chapter 5. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Now, John here is mixing the moral test and the fellowship test. If you love your brother, you love God. And, of course, if you love God, you're going to keep his commandments. So those two things kind of run together. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, of course, the Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. Prophets, priests, and kings are anointed. And Jesus was the king of the anointed prophet, priest, and king of Israel. You believe that he's the Messiah, you're born of God. And that, of course, would mean the Messiah that was prophesied of old all through the Old Testament. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So if I'm a Christian, I love God my Father, I'm going to love the Christians who are born of him because the child born of him refers to Christians who are born of the Father. Now back when John wrote, the Father was closely identified with the rest of family members. He was the head, and he and the members were a family unit, so John's analogy was especially apt. You love the Father, you're going to love the children of the Father. You're going to love the whole family. You're going to love your Christian brethren. You can't help but love them. You get around them, I don't care how... They can drive you crazy sometimes with the dumb things that Christians do, and, and you can get all irritated and bent out of shape, but daggum it down deep inside, you know you love them. You have to, because the Holy Spirit's in you, loving the Holy Spirit that's in that other person. Now, when John says that the child born of him is loved by any Christian that loves the Father, born of him, we Christians are born of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit is implanted in the womb of our hearts, if you, if I can put it that way. The Holy Spirit is like sperm. Our spirit is like the egg, a human egg. And then there's a new life that's created when the sperm and the egg come together. When the Holy Spirit and our spirits come together, there's a new being, a new self that's created. The old man is dead. The old person is dead, buried, symbolized in baptism. And then a new man comes alive. And that new man is a partaker of the divine nature, as John Gill says. Which doesn't mean that we are God, but it means that if God has power, he's omniscient, he has all power, we have some of his power. He's all loving, he He loves with perfect love, but we partake of that love and we can love, maybe our love is imperfect, but we partake of some of the love of God. And so forth, you can run through the attributes of God, the children of God are going to have some of those attributes. And that ought to make you feel a little bit better about yourself if you're running around thinking about, oh, I'm just a miserable worm, I'm a sinner, I'm a failure, I'm a screw-up. No, you're one who partakes of the divine nature. Born of God is who you are. Verse 2, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. You love God, you keep his commandments. Well, you love God, you love the Father, you can't help but love the Father's children. First John 4.21 says this, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There is a commandment that we're supposed to love God. And here in 1 John, it's more like a fact. 
we know the love of the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. We love God, we're going to love the children of God just naturally. And He combines, He commands us to do that, to love our brothers in 1 John 4.21. Now we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. How does observing God's commandments let us know we love the children of God? Well, one of God's commandments is to love the children of God. 1 John 4.21 says this, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I just read you that verse. So that's how you know it. You love God. You observe his commandments. Well, one of his commandments is to love his brothers. So that means when you love the children of God, you're loving God too. So there's two ways you know you love the children of God. One, if you love Excuse me, there's two ways that you know that you love God. One, if you love his children, well, if you love the children, you're going to love the Father. Also, another way you can show that you love God is you keep his commandments. First John 5, 3 elaborates on that idea, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. The love of God, that's how you show you love God, you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, keeping commandments shows that our love to God is not essentially feeling emotions about him. Oh, having hallelujah goosebumps all the time, although that's nice when it happens. It's nice when you feel broken down and crying with so much love and affection for the Father. I'm not trying to deny that's bad. It's wonderful, but unfortunately it doesn't happen 24 hours a day. But keeping his commandments is doing something because love is not mere word, thought, or intention. Love is actions. We love not in word. Well, let's read 1 John 3:18. Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth, in reality. Reality is when you do something for somebody, do something good for somebody that you love. Well, how do we show our love to God? Keep his commandments. That's how he wants you to love him. Keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. The law of Christ may be summed up in one word, love. That's John, that, by the way, that's the scripture that says that his commandments are not burdensome. And I'm saying that the, law of, the law of Christ or the commandment of Christ may be summed up in one word, love. Here's some scriptures written by John, 1 John 3:23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. It was not a suggestion. He commanded us that we would love one another. So there's a commandment. His commandments are not burdensome, and his commandment is that we love one another. That's the law of Christ. John 13, 34, I give you a new command, a new law. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Here's what Adam Clark says, to love him with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves are not grievous. Those commands are not grievous. They're not burdensome, for no man is burdened with the duties which his own love imposes. In other words, if you love somebody, it's going to come naturally. It's going to be a joyful thing that you love your brother. There's nothing better, folks, and there's no better mark of the Christian. The way they'll know that we're Christians is by our love. You show love to your brothers and sisters. You're doing. You're showing your love to God, and you will make yourself a happy person if you serve the brethren. Wash their feet, even as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper. Wash their feet and serve them. Prefer one another in love. Can't go wrong with that. Now, the commandment to love is not burdensome. Compare that to how burdened legalists are. Adam Clark says, love feels no loads. Love feels no loads. Good quote. But legalists, oh, they've got, what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? They placed burdens on the people's shoulders that they themselves are not able to carry. Legalists are always dragging around, their rear ends dragging on the ground, their eyes crying, their mouths drooping. Miserable people because they can't keep the law and they condemn themselves whenever they break whatever law that they're under. Now, when it says the 
the commandments are not burdensome. This is assumes this assumes that the Christian is having the Holy Spirit helping that Christian obey those laws. As the NIV Study Bible says, the commands might be hard, but we have the Holy Spirit to help us obey. You have to have the Holy Spirit to help you obey, because you can turn you can take the law of Christ and turn it into a hard legalistic law that you can't keep, just like you can do that with the law of Moses. First John five four for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. For that means because because his commandments are not burdensome, as he said in verse three, why are they not burdensome? Because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So what he's saying is you can keep the commands that I've given you because you've overcome the world. You have the power. You have you are you partake of the divine nature. You're born of God, and that's how you overcome the world. You love one another, and you keep his commands. Whatever is born of God, I'm assuming that means Christians. John Gill says it could be the principle of grace that's wrought in Christians for whatever is born of God, whatever comes out of God. I don't think so. It's Christians. So let's just say whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, being born of God is something that John likes to talk about a lot. I'm going to give you five scriptures from his gospel as well as First John, the first letter to of John. John 1.13 says this, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were born of God. John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or born from above, the Greek is ambiguous, but the point is, is that you're born of God. 1 John 2.29, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. You are God's child. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Christians are born of God. That's the verse we just read. 1 John 5, 18, next audio. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him. The evil one doesn't touch him. So, folks, we are truly God's kids. We are God's children. We are born of him. Now, what's the result of being a child of God? You overcome the world. And what's the world? The world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the prideful, and the pride of life. We all know what the world is. We've all experienced it, been in it, gotten out of it when we got saved. But it's always there. You putting its temptations out there for you. You might have overcome. You might not care about a lot of stuff in the world. In fact, as a matter of fact, the more you are, the longer you are a Christian, there's a lot of stuff that just does not hold any attraction for you anymore because you're dead to it. But there's something out there. I remember one time about 10, 15 years ago, I got in my head I wanted a light yellow lime green Volkswagen Beetle, the new ones, not the old ones, with a black vinyl top convertible. And doggone it, if I didn't start seeing those cars everywhere. I finally had a good friend of mine say, you just need to get one of those things. I said, I'm not going to do it. Because <laughs> I know what the lust of the, the eyes are, the lust of the eyes is. Yeah, so that got me, but there's a lot of other stuff. I don't have any desire to go to strip joints or bars. I never have. So... You know, but there's always something out there. Well, you've got to overcome that. The child that's born of God has got to overcome that world. Different aspects of the flesh that whatever seduction is trying to get him. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So if we believe in God, couple that with our new nature, that we're born of God, guess what? We're going to overcome the world. The world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the, and the pride of life is not going to get a hold of us. We are destined for victory. We will overcome the world. And that includes persecution by the world, by the way. Not just seductions of the world, but persecutions of the world. The world is ruled by evil men. It's ruled by Satan. 
all if you look at evil people read novels watch movies read the newspaper read the internet whatever and you'll see that people are ruled by money and power and sex i mean it's the same thing you look at the you look at an old 1930s movie and, and you see a drunk party going on the only thing that's changed is the hairdos and the clothing style but the same drunkenness and stupidity that goes on that has gone on back then went on at the time of Xerxes and Esther and right now in 21st century America. It's the same sort of stuff that goes on. We have to overcome it. John expected us to overcome it. He says in 1 John 2.13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Young people are more likely to be seduced by the world, but you can overcome the evil one. I was just watching a movie last night. I couldn't sleep. It's called His Mistress, and I said, uh, the, the, husband, the, the guy always goes back to his wife. Halfway through the movie, one of the, one of the kept women, the courtesans in the movie, looked at the young and innocent, well, she wasn't innocent, actually, she was living with a married man, but she was naive, let's put it that way, and she looked at that girl and said, they, honey, sister, they always go back to their husband. And sure enough, at the end of the movie, they went back to the husband, and she did not overcome the seductions of the the handsome man with a lot of money. She was lonely, and she didn't overcome the world. Well, those seductions will not mean anything to the one who is born of God and who has faith, because it says this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's not just being born again. You also, you've also got to exercise your faith and belief in God, and you can overcome the world. Now, I realize that there are addictions. People that might have been doing drugs for a long time understand homosexuality is a very hard thing to get out of. And if somebody's been promiscuous, and that's kind of hard just to say, bam, slam. I talked to a Christian guy one time in China who was naive enough to think that he thought he was being sexually pure. Pure. He'd read all those things about you're not supposed to fornicate. But he thought fornication meant that once you're married, you... No, no, he, excuse me. He thought fornication was one night stands. But he was having sex with his Christian girlfriend before they were married on a regular basis. But it wasn't one night stand. So he thought he was being sexually pure. So I looked at him, I said, well, you know, I hate to tell you, but that's not what the Bible says. You need to quit having sex with your girlfriend unless you marry her. And he looked at me, says, I can't do that. I can't do that. Why? Because he'd gotten used to it, see? So, you know, once you get into sin, it's a, little, it's a little bit harder to get out of it. But people do it all the time. They are ex-alcoholics who do not go back into the bars. And so we Christians have got to realize that whatever the seductions are, well, we are victims. Tours in Christ, we overcome because we're born of God and we have overcome the world by our faith, as John says in verse 4. And then, of course, that leads to this great verse, 1 John 4 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, means overcome the seducing false teachers. You have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The one is in you is Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the Holy Spirit's in you. Well, actually, Jesus is in you by way of the Holy Spirit, and he is greater than the devil who is in the world. You can overcome the devil because of who's in you. Now, you can overcome initially, overcoming the world when the believer is born again. You overcome the world then, but then the victory continues in day-to-day living, as the NIV Study Bible says. Because of that word overcomes, that's a present tense, continuous aspect. It sounds like for whatever is born of God overcomes the world in other words is in the process of overcoming the world it doesn't just happen when you get born again you got to constantly fight it we go now to verse 5 first john 5 and who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that jesus is the son of god who's overcome the world our faith he said in the previous verse and faith is belief 
and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that's how you overcome the world. That's how you conquer the world, which is just another word for overcoming the world. Now, belief that Jesus is the Son of God, let's look at some relevant scriptures. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So there's two types of people. You deny the Father and the Son, you're the anti- you're Antichrist. But you believe the Father and the Son, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, well then you overcome the world. First John four two, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now of course back then there were these dose of this Gnostic type heretics who were not confessing that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh because they believed that Jesus was a ghost, and John is saying, No, 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 you believe Jesus is who for who he was, the perfect human being, the God man who suffered on the cross and who actively obeyed the law, kept the law, you confess that Jesus, who he was, then then you'll. this is how you know the Spirit of God. You'll know you're in the Spirit. All right, so you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You confess him. You confess that he's come in the flesh. And guess what? You're going to conquer the world. Conquer the world. That doesn't mean you're going to take it over and rule it like some kind of latter-day futurist antichrist. It means you're going to conquer the temptations of this world and the persecutions of this world. First John 4, 4 says this, You were from God, little children, and you have conquered them. That verse I just read to you. You've conquered them. You're victorious in Christ. When you signed up to be a Christian, you didn't sign up to be a loser. You didn't sign up to lie around in a bed of roses, that's for sure. But in your efforts to tackle the vicissitudes of life, by golly, you did sign up to be a conqueror and an overcomer. Scripture says it right here. We go to verse 6, 1 John 5. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, this is a key verse. You need to remember three things, water, blood, and Spirit. There are three testimonies, remember, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Well, here's three witnesses right here, water, blood, and Spirit. Now, what's water? That's I'm going to give you the majority views here. Water is probably Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry. His blood was the blood he shed at the end of his ministry when he was crucified. And the Spirit testified 40 days later, excuse me, 50 days later at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Now, that's what I believe it is. That's the simplest way to interpret it. But let's, let's look at it a little closer to look at some other options as to what water is, for example. It could have been ablutions of the ceremonial law. He came having undergone those washings of the ceremonial law. Gil denies that. I don't think that's it either. It could be that Jesus washed and cleansed his people of their sins. So when John says he came by water, he came as a cleanser, uh, as someone who cleans cleans sins, which would be sort of metaphorical. Nah. John Gill says that's, that Jesus came to do that, to clean people. That's not what he came by. And this verse says he came by water. So what does it mean? Well, Jesus was baptized by John at the River Jordan. Now, who believes that? Who mentions that, at least, as Gill, Clark, and James Foster and Brown, the NIV Study Bible actually affirms that. That's what it means, and I think they're right. Jesus came by water, John 1.32, and John testified, I watched the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. Of course, that's when Jesus was baptized in water. Now, the one who came by blood, here's some other options, came by Old Testament sacrifices, no, Gil denies that because Jesus came to abolish the Old Testament sacrifices. He didn't come by them. The blood that he came by is his own blood shed for the remission of sins. John Gill affirms that. Clark, you know, he studied Bible, affirms that. That's what it is. That's how he testified by blood or how he came by blood. 
came by is a little bit of a strange expression, but I think what it means is he came in the company of the water of his baptism and the blood of his sacrifice. So the NIV Study Bible puts it this way, from the beginning of his ministry to the end, Jesus was the Messiah. From the beginning when he was water baptized to the end when he shed his blood on the cross. Adam Clark points out that Moses and Aaron are types of this, water and blood. Moses took Israelites through the water, through the sea, the Red Sea. So there's the water. And then Aaron sacrificed bulls and goats for the people. There's the blood. Jesus fulfilling both types is greater than Moses and Aaron, as Adam Clark says. All right, so that's the water and the blood, the water of his baptism, the blood of his sacrifice. And now the third thing that John mentions in this verse is the Spirit who testifies. That's the Holy Spirit, of course. Now, there's, I've got five options as to how the Spirit testifies. And I'm going to say right here, I don't believe they're mutually exclusive. It could be all five of them. Here's the first option. The Spirit testifies through the gospel. John Gill mentions that. The Spirit testifies by the preaching of the gospel. Or, second option, the Holy Spirit testifies by the miracles of Jesus. Here's a quote from John Gill. Quote, Those miraculous works which Christ did by the Spirit, to which he often appeals, as witnesses of his divine sonship and equality with the Father, as well of his being the true Messiah. Option number three, the Spirit who testifies by descending from heaven as a dove and landing on Jesus at John's baptism. That's option number three. Option number four, the Holy Spirit testifies by descending on the disciples at Pentecost and making them all speak in tongues and so forth. Acts 5.32, we referring to Peter and the other apostles. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit is a witness or a, testi a testifier, not a passive witness seeing something, but testifying about the truth. The Holy Spirit did that at Pentecost. Fifth possible option of how the Spirit testifies, the subjective witness of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. Adam Clark says that, and actually that's the way I've always read that verse without thinking about it. The Spirit who testifies testifies to us internally in, the, in our hearts. So it could be objectively through the gospel, through the miracles of Jesus, through, by descending on Jesus at John's baptism, by objectively descending on the disciples at Pentecost where everybody could see it. Or it could be a subjective witness. Or it could be all five of those. I have no problem because the Holy Spirit test gave plenty of evidence that Jesus is the Christ. The Spirit is the truth. Truth can be true as opposed to false, or it can be reality as opposed to illusion probably take it this way because the Spirit is reality. We go now to verses 7 and 8, 1 John 5. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. Now, we've just said that about the testimony of the three. We actually didn't say testimony. Verse 6 says, Jesus came by water and blood, the Spirit testified. The Spirit gave testimony, Jesus came by water and blood. And it's a natural thing to think that, well, the water and blood also testify of what Jesus did. But it doesn't actually say that. Verse 7 does say that. There are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood, but there's a problem. This verse is probably not in the original manuscripts. I'm going to read you some learned opinion on that. John Gill says the genuineness of the text has been called into question by some. I'll say it's been called into question by a lot. Let me read the King James Version of it. For there are three that bear record in heaven. King James has in heaven. The Holman Christian Study Bible does not have in heaven. It just says there are three that testify. King James says there are three that bear record in heaven. And these three are one. Now Grudem in his Systematic Theology, discussing the Trinity, Trinity says this is an error. Because this would be a perfect verse to argue for the Trinity, obviously, but it's bogus. It's not accurate. Here's what Adam Clark says, quote, It is likely this verse is not genuine. It is wanting in every manuscript of this epistle written before the invention of printing. 
One accepted the Codex Montforti in Trinity College, Dublin. The others which omit this verse amount to 112, 112 manuscripts. It is wanting in both the Syriac, all the Arabic, Ethiopic, the Coptic, Sahidic, Armenian, Slavonian, etc. In a word, in all the ancient versions, but the Vulgate, and even of this version, many of the most ancient and correct manuscripts have it not. It is warning also in all the ancient Greek fathers and most even of the Latin. Well, with all that evidence, we can assume that there's an error at putting this in the Scripture, although the Holy, Holy Homo Christian Study Bible has it. And, of course, it doesn't state anything heretical, of course. you got three witnesses in there in agreement, and that's fine. But we're going to assume it's not in the Bible. Now, the water, the blood, and the spirit, well, let's, let's, let's just, for the sake of argument, say it is in the original text. Well, it's saying that the water, the blood, and the spirit all testify that Jesus is the Son of God. And, remember, the Old Testament law required two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, the one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.19, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. So that's standard rabbinic legal practice. And so somebody put this in the scripture and said, see there, we got three witnesses for the Trinity that Jesus is the Son of God. We go now to verse 9, 1 John 5. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. Now, of course, we do accept the testimony of men. There's no court system in the world. We accept the testimony of men when we read histories, when we try to decide whether somebody's guilty or innocent or in court or liable or not liable in court. We use the testimony of men. It's a powerful thing. You have to do it. It's not perfect. You have to. You've got to guard it, hedge it about with all kinds of evidentiary rules to make sure that the testimony of men is not biased and inaccurate, but we do accept the testimony of men. However, God's testimony is even greater than the testimony of men. Why? Because God's testimony, because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son, about Jesus Christ. That's something we ought to pay attention to. That's important testimony. Now, even though the witness of God is greater than the testimony of men, there were men who witnessed Jesus' work, as John Gill points out. The wise men of the east came and saw the star, the baby. The shepherds who saw Jesus' star, they were witnesses. And plus, the, all the gospel writers were witnesses. They witnessed all of Jesus' teachings and his miracles. But God's testimony is nonetheless greater than all that. John Gill says, well, let's talk about what is the witness of God. Give you a couple of options. One, it's the witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood that we just talked about. The NIV Study Bible says it's just the Spirit. It doesn't mention the water and the blood. God's testimony through His Spirit. John Gill says it's the gospel preached by the Spirit. Or John Gill suggests maybe it's the ordinance of water baptism that bears witness of Christ. And we, of course, have God the Father testifying of Jesus at Jesus' baptism. And there came a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, I take delight in Him. Well, whether it's the gospel, whether it's the voice of God at the baptism, whether, however, the Spirit does His testimony... It's an example of God's greater testimony than the testimony of men, because men can't do that kind of thing. John Gillies suggests another kind of testimony. He's, he's talking about the witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The witness of the blood would be the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, bears witness to Christ every time Christians get down and eat the Lord's Supper and drink his figurative blood and by the fruit of the vine. Well, we're showing to everybody who Jesus is. Well, John once again goes to his old theme in this book of testimony, as I pointed out over and over as we've gone through this. Remember, he starts out in the work by saying, 
our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hands have touched Jesus. And we were with him from the beginning. And what he's saying is, is we saw him, we heard him. He's not a ghost. He was a human being, and we saw what he did. And so he, again, is saying, okay, you might want to accept that testimony from us men, but God's testimony is even greater because he's done a lot of stuff in this world for you blockheads, for any blockhead that refuses to see it. There is no excuse. There must be 50 trillion Bibles scattered all over the world. And how many people don't even open it, don't even pick one up to look and see what's in there? Hey, well, it's not fair. God sent me to hell. Well, did you even bother to pick up the Bible and look at it? Then they'll start talking about how it's not fair for the pagans in Africa who don't have the Bible. Well, they do have the Bible. Do they ever look at it? Or do they look at it and try to tear it down and say, oh, it's full of errors. It's a lie. Well, God's testimony is greater than the testimony of men. It's probably the witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood. I think that's basically what God's testimony. You can summarize God's testimony that way. You could be more specific about it and say it's the witness of God about Jesus at the Transfiguration. Matthew 17, 5, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. There's a witness of the Holy Spirit to the Son. However you take it, and again, you can take it not exclusively, but you could say jointly all these things are true, all these things are witnesses of God. But however you take the testimony of God, it's greater than testimony of men. And we believe men, so let's believe God. First John 5.10, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given within his Son. Now, John has talked about a lot of objective testimonies, you know, the blood and the water, but he also mentions the Spirit within. And, of course, the earlier testimony of the Spirit could be referring to objective, manif- objective testimonies of the Spirit, objective witnesses of the Spirit, the miracles, the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and so forth. But here he's talking about testimony within him. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that's referring to the Holy Spirit within the believer, and I believe they're right. You cannot, you can emphasize objective witnesses all you want, and I think we need to do that. We don't want to be pie-in-the-sky mystics, but I'm telling you, you cannot ignore the subjective witness of the Spirit inside one. You got the testimony that Jesus is true, but the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. That shows that all non-believers are liars. That verse says it right there. You don't believe God? You just, well, no, I'm sorry, it doesn't mean the non-believer's a liar. The non-believer is calling God a liar, made him a liar, said, hey, God, you sent your son down here, did all this stuff, the blood, the water, the Holy Spirit, doing miracles, Pentecost, all this stuff that Jesus, that you have done, God, I still don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, you just made God a liar because he gave you all the testimony that was out there that you need, but you didn't listen to him. That's a huge sin. So it's foolish for unbelievers to say, well, I'm a good person. Well, you're not a good person. You just called God a liar because you didn't believe the witness that he sent. First John five eleven through 13. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice how life shows up in those three verses a good bit. And this is the testimony. What is the testimony? The testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this is the testimony, colon, God has given us eternal life. So this eternal life starts at the time of belief, and it continues on forever. You will never die. Eternal life doesn't just start at death, as the NIV study Bible points out. It starts when you get born again, and it only gets better and better. 
This idea of life is everywhere in, well, in John and also in other scriptures. John 1, 4, life was in him and that life was the light of men. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am, this is, I think it's Mary of Bethany. I am the resurrection. I'm, I forgot who it was, but let's, whoever it was, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. John fourteen six. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10, This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So folks, all those fancy words you hear at funerals about death not having its sting, it's exactly true for believers. Believers will not die. They will live forever. They have eternal life, as Jesus has promised them over and over in the scriptures. And Jesus is not a liar. And I'm not going to call God a liar. I'm going to believe that I have eternal life. John says, I've written these things to you, to you who believe, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, he's written the letter of 1 John. That's what he's talking about, everything he's written before. And he's had a purpose in it, so that you may believe, that you may know that you have eternal life. I've written these things to you who do believe, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, no, again, that word not, no pops up all through 1 John 5 because John is fighting Gnostic heretics and they are saying, oh, you can't know God unless you give us a secret password and learn all of our esoteric garbage, Kabbalistic nonsense, myths, slogans, esoterica and all that kind of stuff. No, you just believe in the name of the Son of God and you, then you know you have eternal life. You have the witness in you. You have that eternal, that subjective witness within you, as he says in verse 10. You know that you have eternal life. If you're worried about dying, read this verse, appropriate it, and then you know that you have eternal life. You know that you will not just turn into a pile of molecular dust and disappear. And you know that you will not descend into hell to suffer punishment for your many sins. Not going to happen. King James Version has a little problem here. Instead of saying, you who believe, I've written these things to you who believe. King James says, I've written these things to you that you may believe or that ye may believe. Well, that's a problem, is it not? Because these readers have already believed, so it's acting like John's trying to evangelize them. Well, that's not bad translation. Homer Christian Study Bible, New American Standard Bible, and I'm sure there's other versions too. I didn't bother to check, but it says you who believe. So there's no problem there. I mentioned that the no refers to the, he's referring to the false knowledge of the Gnostics contrasted to the true knowledge of Jesus. Also, we need to remember the other emphasis in 1 John is testimony, evidence, and this is the testimony. He's already mentioned the eyewitness testimony of eyes have seen, ears have heard, hands have touched. In fact, the whole letter is full of testimony and proof, the moral test. Oh, you want to know if you love God or not when you're keeping his commandments? Oh, you want to know if you're a Christian or not? Whether you know God or not? Do you love your brother? Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with the first 13 verses of 1 John chapter 5. In our next audio, we will tackle 1 John 5 verses 13 21, which I will call Knowing the Son of God. And we'll finish up the book of 1 John. I hope you can stay tuned for that audio and hope you enjoyed this one.